little bit of space to come before God's word as we've been singing uh, these truths of who he is, and now we're going to celebrate who he is as we look at our text tonight. And so I'm going to pray for us, and as I pray, uh, would you uh, think about those things that are maybe distracting you from seeing who God is and his truth as we are looking in this series of losing our religion and finding truth in the gospel. So will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to come to your word. Lord, you are good. As we've been singing, the refrain may feel like we're surrounded, but in truth, we are surrounded by you. And so, Lord, we bring all those things before you now, the distractions, the anxiety, the stress, the pressure, the feeling of inadequacy, whatever it may be, God, we bring it before you and we ask that you would fill us, that you would give us strength and hope and joy, all the things that you promise as we come to see you as a good father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you're like me, but I have had basketball on my mind for the past few weeks. How many of you have had basketball on your mind? Three of you. Awesome. Um, it is March Madness, if you didn't know. Uh, it's March Madness. A lot of you, you so we have, well, let's try it again. How many of you have basketball on your mind? You're like watching games in some fashion. Okay, five of you. Um, wonderful. Uh, March Madness, if you're unfamiliar, it seems like some of the church here is unfamiliar. This is the NCAA tournament. Many of you, I'm sure, are engaged with it through brackets and you're choosing teams. It's such an interesting time of year. I've been so thinking about basketball. I've been watching games with teams I don't care about and uh, teams I know very little about. In fact, one of the teams I was thinking of this past week is the team Gonzaga, which they always have a good basketball team, and I'm a little salty because they beat my team, uh, Florida State. And I was sitting there watching the game, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know where Gonzaga is. But I've probably watched them like 30 times play games over the years, and so I looked it up. They're from Spokane, Washington, which doesn't help because I don't know where that is. All I know is Seattle, so they're in the woods somewhere in Washington, and they have this incredible basketball team, and they're always good. They're still in the tournament. And, well, maybe they lost. I think they lost. Yeah, they lost. They're out of the tournament, see? We're all, see, see, there were some of you that responded there, so there's more people watching the games. But it's interesting this time of year with March Madness that we start watching these games, and we're watching teams from cities that we don't know, and uh, teams and colleges we've never been to, we have no association with. And, and much of it is because we like the bracket. You know, we like to be in the bracket pool with our friends, and we get to choose the teams to do a little bit of research before. Some of you just choose based upon the mascot you like. You know, it's okay. A lot of times you'll win that way. But what's interesting about the NCAA tournament is that a lot of us are watching these games and our bracket is busted. We have no chance of winning. We didn't go to these schools. We don't even really know much about these schools, and yet we're watching the games. And I was asking myself, why is that? Why are we so fascinated by all of these teams and these games? And I think it's because the NCAA tournament, college basketball tournament, creates moments and there are moments that we want to participate in. There are moments that we want to experience. We like watching the games. Even though we don't know the players, we don't know the schools, we want to see them get to the very end and that last second shot. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? That's been very uh, prominent in this NCAA tournament recently where there's teams that have lost in the last second through a last second shot they made or a last second shot they missed. And we want to see the joy on the team that wins and we empathize with the pain of the team that is just completely despondent that their season is over in such a dramatic fashion. 
It's so interesting that that captivates us. These type of dramatic moments, are, they're attractive and they're powerful. You know, what's interesting about this section of our text tonight in the letter to the church in Galatia in modern-day Turkey, the Apostle Paul writes, and here in chapter 4 as he begins, he's wanting to bring up a moment, and a moment that he wants everyone to relive and to experience this gospel moment. He's been breaking down the difference between the law and gospel, religion and the gospel, all throughout this text. And here, he wants to bring up this moment of your adoption as a son and daughter of God because he wants you to experience it again. He wants you to see it with fresh eyes so that it might affect the way you view God and the way that you view others. So if you look at the text with me in beginning of verse 1, here's what he says. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul's been making different analogies throughout this letter, and and in chapter 3, as we looked at last week, he was really bringing up this distinction between the law, religion, and rules— And the gospel, the good news of grace through faith in Christ. He speaks about Abraham and he gives some other analogies in chapter 3. But here as he continues this discussion, he's bringing up a new analogy. And it's an analogy of an heir who is awaiting an inheritance from his father. And he says that an heir who is awaiting a great inheritance is really treated like a slave until that time and that point where they're going to receive all the blessings that their father has accumulated for them. You see, in ancient times, the way that it would work is that if you were an heir, you're the oldest son, you are going to receive the inheritance of your father. All of his estate, his estates, his livestock, everything he's accumulated will be handed over to you. But until that point, they were treated very much like a slave. They were enslaved. They had literal guardians and managers that would oversee every aspect of their life would tell them what to wear, when to wake up, when to go to bed, what time to go to school, what to eat, what not to eat, how to behave, what is socially acceptable, what is not, what is right, what is wrong. Everything would guard and manage every aspect of their life. And the reason they would do this is because it was believed that with this type of intense guarding and managing of the child, it would bring that child to full maturity so that when it was time for them to receive the inheritance, They would receive it with appreciation, and that they would be capable of overseeing it well. See, he's bringing up this analogy because he's saying this. In the same way, we are raised in a system. We are raised under, he says, the elementary principles of the world. We have a guardian and a manager. We're guarded and we're managed by something, and it is the elementary principles of the world, which he's saying is the law rules this religious system. And not religious in the sense of necessarily to a particular faith, though that could be the case, but just the system of performance and the system of what is right and socially acceptable and good and bad and how to behave, all of these things. You see, all of us here were guarded and managed from a young age. We had people in our life that were managing us and guarding us. Our parents 
coaches, teachers, maybe it was a religious institution, culture itself, people speaking over you, telling you, here's what is acceptable, here is not. Here's what you should eat, here's what you should not eat. Here's what's right, here's what's wrong. Here's how to behave in this situation, here's how not to behave. We are guarded and we are managed by people, all of us, since the time we were born. Regardless of your situation and the environment that you were raised in, that's true across the world. But we're not only guarded and managed by people that put these elementary principles over us, but we're also guarded and managed by this internal code that is within all of us. All of us have a feeling and a conviction where we have this internal guidance system telling us this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is how I should behave, and we follow that. Every single one of us in this room has been socially conditioned to believe certain things are good and certain things are bad, and certain behavior is acceptable and certain behavior is not. And it manages us, and it guides us, and it tells us how we are to live. And, and what Paul is saying is that that experience in this system that we're all born into is preparing us for something. It's preparing us for an inheritance, and that's true. If you look at the human soul, every one of us would resonate with this. As we're guarded and we're managed by people and an internal guidance system, we begin to ask questions. Why is that good? Why is that bad? Why is that acceptable? Why is that not? As we grow, as we graduate from the elementary principles of the world, we go on this quest to find truth, and we start to ask all these questions. We start to question the people that guarded and managed us. We start to question the things that we just feel inherently, to try to discover what is true. Is there something awaiting us? Is there some kind of type of satisfaction or thing that will fulfill us, that inheritance? What is that? And we go on this search for truth. Apostle Paul is saying that the reason that we are prepared in this broken system that we've created is so that we might receive the gospel. See, we are raised under the law so that we might be prepared for the gospel. That's why we're raised in this system, so that when we see the good news of Jesus Christ as true, it is an inheritance that is so appreciated that we respond to and we manage well and we see well and we behold its beauty because we've been raised under the law in a broken system that causes us to question and causes us to search. See, that's what he says here in verse 4 as he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, into our broken system, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. You see, what, he, what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that as this system has been in place since the beginning of human history, when sin entered the world and we began to perform for each other and to decide what is right and wrong and socially acceptable and not acceptable, and we had people guarding and managing us, and we had this internal code, this internal standard and guidance system also guiding and managing us, telling us how to behave, and we're, we're, we are enslaved to this, and we're following after this, we begin to question that, and, and what is true and what is not true that right when it was just the perfect time, Jesus came, born of a woman, into this system. We don't know why 
2,000 plus years ago, around 3 or 4 AD, that was the right time, the perfect time for Jesus to come. Maybe it's because at that time the Roman Empire was connected to much of the known world, and so the trade routes would make it very easy to spread the message of the gospel all throughout the world. Maybe it's because there was a common language, the Greek language, the majority of people spoke, and so people would be able to communicate and share truth. Maybe it's because at this point in time, the the Greco-Roman world was searching for something as they're worshiping these these pagan gods that are really bringing nothing back to their life. And so they said, there's got to be something out there. They call it the Logos, this divine reason, this kind of supreme God that gives order to everything. That's why John in his gospel says that the Logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, who is Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because the Jews have been participating and following this arduous, exhausting religious system, trying to maintain their righteousness by their behavior. We don't exactly know why 2,000 plus years ago was the perfect time, but we can kind of see that it was now because in 2019, we're still talking about it. It's changed the world. It's changed lives and hearts because of Christ being born of a woman under the law, born to redeem us, that are a part of this broken system. He became a part of it. St. Augustine has this great quote, which helps us just kind of frame this theologically. He says, man was added to him, that is Jesus, God not lost to him. He emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. God became flesh. The son of God, who always was, He became flesh. He came into our system, emptied himself, humbled himself as he took on the form of man, our form, into our system that is broken, into all of us that are enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. And and the question you ask yourself is, is why? Why would God become flesh under our system, under the law? He says that here. The reason is, is to redeem us from it. That law has been preparing us for something that's true, something that's actually good news, because the law is not good news, it's bad news, because we can't uphold it. So he came to redeem us from this broken, exhausting system and to provide truth, the very thing that we're searching for. He says something so striking here. He came to redeem us from the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Christ came to redeem you so that you might be adopted redeem you as an orphan to be adopted. Adoption is is so powerful. I know many of you are adopted and many of you are considering adoption. It's such a powerful reality. I remember this experience when I was in Haiti. And you know how you have these experiences in life where you can just imagine everything that took place as if you're walking through that experience again. And I'm processing what this looked like this week, and I I just remember that we were on this trip, and we headed out to this village, a small village called Cabaret, and we went to go visit an orphanage there. But it was a government-run orphanage. Now, I've been to Haiti many, many times and been to many orphanages, and many of them are run by uh, Christian organizations and other nonprofits, and they're wonderful in the way that they care for the kids, and they even care for the families They help bring these kids through school and give them a vision and a hope and tell them that they have a future. 
some incredible things happening, but this orphanage was different. It was government-run, which meant it was just a room, a small building that had orphans living in it with no caregiver and no oversight whatsoever. As if just, here's a shelter, figure out how to live. Walking into this concrete 20 by 20 building with a metal roof and walk inside and you might imagine what I experienced. There's no power. There's no proper toilets. And it's full of orphans, both kids and elderly. You see, there's a really sad reality in Haiti that a lot of elderly men and women are orphaned. It's like a reverse orphan. They lose their support system because they can't provide for the family. They have nothing to offer, and so they're detached from family and friends, and they're orphaned. It's a room full of orphaned children and orphaned elderly men and women. It's unbearably hot, incredibly unsanitary and dark. We begin to interact with the kids there and, and those that are living there, the elderly as well, and come to find out that the way that they survived was just through the generosity of the village that would sporadically bring food and maybe come play a game or two with the kids and invite, you know, encourage them to go to school. They're living there trying to make the most of their situation. It's, I mean, horribly hopeless, <laughs> playing games with them and having these conversations. I just remember immediately thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down crying right here in front of all these kids, these elderly men and women. And I, I walked away from that experience, and I felt, like, angry and hopeless. Like, what in the world would allow this to happen? Why is this happening? What can I do? What can be done? It was encouraging later to hear the organization I was working with. They became aware of this experience and actually got to be a part of helping build the first ever elderly care facility in Haiti in response to that, as well as caring for those kids that were in that orphanage. But the reality is there's a lot of orphans all over the world that are in that condition. Relief is sporadic. There's very little hope, if any whatsoever. See, it sticks with me, and it remains so deep in my soul because... As I read this text, I realize before faith in Christ, we're orphans. That's, that's our condition. Relief and satisfaction is sporadic, and it's unreliable. We're living in a dark place. And you know what we do is we try to make the most of it. See, when we're, when we're orphans before Christ, we try to make the most of it, and we try to dress up our life to make it seem like it's not as bad as it really is. And so we focus on our achievements, we focus on our relationships, we focus on all the things that we can do that will bring us pleasure, our leisure. Say, look at my life, look what I'm doing, everything's okay, but we're really living in a 20 by 20 concrete house that's dark and terrifying with no hope. And when we have those sober moments in life where we really reflect, we feel that. You feel alone, you feel empty, you feel unfulfilled. You feel like, man, is there ever going to be relief to that deep feeling like I'm kind of an orphan? And if you're, if you're feeling that, we've all been there. I've been there. So that, that's our condition. That's our reality is that we're orphans before we're adopted. 
And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because though that's our condition and we try to dress it up, we try to make the most of it, look what the verse says. But Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. See, we were orphans, but Christ came. In the fullness of time, at the right time, born to a woman under the law to redeem us from the law, this religious performance-based system that leaves us empty and leaves us feeling alone as orphans, separated from God and feeling like we're separated from each other a lot of the times. Christ came to redeem us from that and to adopt us as sons and daughters. See, the reality is through faith in Christ, if you believe in the good news of the gospel, you have a permanent home. You have hope. You're not in a hopeless situation. You're not an orphan and you're not alone. You're a son and you're a daughter because of Christ. Verse 6, he says that you are sons and daughters, and God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a translation of being like dad. The spirit of Christ is yearning and crying out in your heart that God is dad, meaning God is not abstract anymore. God is not like the organization that sends sporadic relief when you really need food. No, God is your father. You are not an orphan. He has changed your status to son and daughter. You don't live in the 20 by 20 concrete house with a tin roof that's dark and with unreliable support. You've been invited into a permanent home, into his home, and you have hope. This week I was, uh, this may have been a mistake, but I was researching on YouTube adoption stories. Um, if you want to cry, if you just like, need a good cry, just go on YouTube and type in adoption story compilation. You're going to lose it. Okay, people are probably walking by the office and pipeline this week like, what's wrong with Carter? Why is he crying? You know, just like, I'm not crying. You know, I'm just, you're watching these stories of these children that are orphaned, they're alone, feeling hopeless. <laughs> There's parents that have chosen to adopt them change their status and you watch this interaction when they hear the news and I'm sure you've seen some of these videos before you could imagine it tears and joy like you can't imagine I have a father and a mother now someone's choosing me when you feel abandoned and empty and alone this is so powerful about adoption is the choice it's the choice of parents to say to their non-biological children, I love you, and I want you in my family. I choose you. You have nothing to offer, but I want to change your status from orphan to son or daughter. And when you receive that, if you are an orphan, there's an explosion of emotion passion and joy and relief. You see, Paul is bringing up this example because he wants you to relive that moment. He wants you to experience that moment again. He wants you to recognize that before faith in Christ, you were an orphan. You were alone, 
feeling hopeless and empty and unfulfilled and searching for truth in all these different places in life and trying to dress up your life and make it feel like it's really worth something and everything's great, but deep down you know it's not. But because Christ came under the law, he's removing you from that system. Through faith in him, you are adopted. God is literally looking at you and saying, I choose you. I want you. I love you. I am changing your status from orphan to son or daughter. You're in my family now. You have nothing to offer me, but I choose you. Such a powerful reality. That God is your dad. We struggle with believing that. But see, here's what we see in this text and we see all throughout Scripture. Is that you can rest in your adoption Because Christ signed and sealed the paperwork of your adoption with his life. You're adopted. Through faith in Christ, you're a son and a daughter. You may not feel like it all the time, but you are. You see, we struggle with this because though we're adopted, we're still atrophied by our previous condition. Because we're born under the law. And so we really struggle with believing that that God really loves me and chose me and wants me and calls me son and daughter through faith. A lot of us here feel like this. We would say, I know God loves me, but does he like me? He loves me. I'm adopted. I'm a son and a daughter. I'm reading it here through faith in Christ. That's great. But does he really want anything to do with me? You see, we live in this system of performance. We have to perform for the love of others. To be accepted, we have to look and act and talk a certain way. To find hope in life, you have to really grit your teeth and be determined to make something of yourself. And so we bring that into our relationship with God. God, if I'm not performing for you, do you really love me? If I'm not looking and acting and talking the way that I should, do you really want a relationship with me? Is there really hope if I'm not really gritting my teeth and determined to improve myself? Could you really just love me as a son and a daughter, even though I've really done nothing? Do you really want me in your family? I know you love me, but do you like me? This this weekend, we sent out a a message on Instagram. We asked people to, to direct message us things that you're struggling with in your relationship with God or your relationship with others. And thank you to some of you that participated in that or texted me. Some of the questions and some of the things that we struggle with, I want to share with you. And I want you to see how the reality of your adoption as a son and a daughter should affect that. So one of the things that we received was struggling with fear. Fear in life. Fear of what lies ahead. Fear of what's coming. See, if you struggle with fear, why would you struggle with fear if the God who created all things is your dad and has outlined your life, has chosen your life, is overseeing your life like a good parent? You're not being guarded and managed by a religious system. You're being guarded and managed by God, your father, who cares for you. We're sent in that struggling with Feeling like God is withholding good from you. How many of you feel like that? I know, he, I know God loves me, but 
is he withholding good from me? You see, he's a good father who gives good gifts. Why would he withhold anything from you if he brought you into his family when you had nothing to offer him? Why now would he begin to withhold? No, he's not going to withhold. He's going to continue to give. As we said last week, your blessing is not dependent upon your action. Your blessing is a byproduct of your faith in Christ. Some of you are feeling inferior, inferior to others, inferior to your relationship with God. Again, God is your father who chose you, who wants you, who says, I love you, and changed your status from orphan to son and daughter. Some of you are struggling with feeling like there's no hope. The things that you wanted to see happen in life have not happened yet, and you wonder if they're going to ever happen. God is your dad. And dads love their kids. And God loves you. And he desires to bring fulfillment and flourishing to your life. In fact, he's promised that he's working everything in your life for good. Even when it feels like there's no hope, there is. In fact, your hope is everlasting. It's eternal. You're in a new family. And you have a new house. But we struggle with that. I think one of the reasons we struggle with really believing that we're adopted as sons and daughters, that God chose us and he loves us based upon nothing that we've done, is because as children, we have a knack for testing our, our father's patience and love. All kids have a knack for testing their parents' patience and love, and we have a knack for testing that with God. Like, God, do you really? Do you like me? Do you really love me? Do you really care about my life? Well, here's the truth. God's love for you is rooted and secured by his love for Jesus. It has nothing to do with you and your performance. He loves you because Christ was born to a woman under the law so that you might be redeemed from the law and adopted. It is secured because of Christ and his life. He signed the paperwork of your adoption with his life. You are chosen, you are redeemed, you are loved, and you cannot undo that status. You need to receive that. There's a passage in Zephaniah that says that God delights over you and he sings over you. And so when you have those moments where you're feeling restless and anxious and without hope and you're feeling fearful, maybe God, you're withholding good for me. Maybe you're judging. Maybe you don't like me. Maybe you don't want nothing to do with me. Maybe I'm just going to always feel empty. See, God is a father who chose you as an orphan and made you a son and a daughter, and he holds you and he sings over you. He delights over you, as Zephaniah says. Here's what he says. He says, you are no longer a slave. Not a slave to that old system, the elementary principles of the world, but you're a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. You're an heir Meaning all that God has is yours. It's guaranteed to you. You're going to experience the fullness of that through eternity with him. And he's slowly showing and revealing that to you now. So we need to be people that lose our religion and rest in our adoption. We need to lose our fear and rejoice in our adoption we need to lose our sense of hopelessness and remember that we have eternal hope because of Christ 
and what he has done for us. We're sons and daughters. You see, you can lose everything in your life. Except this. You're chosen by God and you're a daughter or a son of the king and God loves you. You can lose everything else in life. But that, through faith in Christ, his death and his resurrection, you will never lose. No matter what becomes of your life, there is hope. Will you pray with me? God, we are amazed that you would call us sons and daughters, that you would desire to change our status, or we don't deserve it, we don't fully even understand it. But through faith in Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection, you have offered us a new life with you, a new family. Lord, we don't have to run this race under the law to perform for you and for others. We don't have to live a life feeling empty and unfulfilled on a never-ending quest for truth. You have offered us truth. You have presented truth, the good news of who Christ is, that he came at the right time to redeem us from the law, this broken system that we might receive a change status, the status of adoption. Lord, will we rest in the reality that we are loved and chosen, that you desire us? Will we stop running and following after this exhausting system and just run into your arms as you sing over us, as you delight over us, God? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.